After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son, who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you may count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these examples in Scripture, these righteous men that you led out of their homelands and into the unknown ways, Lord. May we carry this faith in our own hearts and our daily life. In your holy name we pray to you. Amen. Um, my own children are in the room, or at least two of them. They're two and three quarters of them. And uh, I just want to give parents permission. If, like, your kids are squirmy, it's okay, it's okay to walk around. I usually don't hear anything anyway, so just don't feel bad about it. Since we don't have classes today, feel free to walk around. Feel free to, like, I'm, I'm not going to hear them. So I just want to, like, let you off the hook. A number of years ago, there was a prominent pastor that I follow on Twitter who tweeted something that I thought was astonishing. He said, some days I just don't know if I can believe it all again. I kind of do, but I just don't want to. Too much effort. Then I get better. What was surprising about the tweet was that this, this prominent pastor with a pretty big platform was saying publicly something that many of us are reluctant to admit privately. That sometimes you just don't believe. Or sometimes you're sitting in a worship service like this and you're singing the songs and like your body may be going through the motions, but in your mind or your heart you just have this sudden like self-awareness or self-consciousness and you think, do I even believe any of this? Or some days it's just a it's very difficult place to live. Like the world is a hard place to live and it's difficult to be a person. And some days you just wonder, is there a God who cares and notices and is ultimately going to do anything about this? And you just kind of wonder if you actually believe. And since the beginning of Genesis, we've been exploring this idea of the ancient path in Jeremiah 6.16. Uh, Jeremiah said, look at, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you'll find rest for your soul. And we've been exploring, like, what is this concept of the ancient path? What, looks, what is the, like, historic road of faithfulness that many, many have followed, that have gone before us that we can follow, looking at attributes of the ancient path? And Today, as we continue along the ancient path, I want to bring front and center the topic of doubt and questioning and uncertainty. And I want to say from the start that I think the theme of doubt or questioning one's faith has been uh, often unfairly typecasted in Christian circles, in Christian culture, as the bad guy or the villain. And I don't think that's completely fair. When I was a teenager, I began to ask questions, not so much about the Christian faith itself, but about my own engagement, my own like, participation in the life of the church as a Christian. And I was raised in a charismatic Pentecostal church, which I loved. My heart was kindled for God really early in life. But as I was 16, 17 years old, I began to ask, am I like raising my hands and praying at the top of my lungs and dancing around like a madman because I actually love God? Or because this is just some kind of weird niche peer pressure that I, like I ended up in these kind of circles? 
Like, am I a person who genuinely believes this stuff? Or if I had been, you know, born into another family, I probably would have been less likely to do that. And I got some responses that I found not super helpful. Uh, One of the kind of responses that I got was, well, that's an attack from the enemy. Uh, Another response that I got was, was like, well, that's just like, you just need to pray through that and push through that doubt or those questions. And as a 16, 17-year-old trying to make sense of the world, I I didn't find those answers super compelling. I was like, really? Like, you really think that question is evidence of demonic attack? Or really, like, is this question just an obstacle that I need to push through and that's all that it is, something I should ignore or try to sidestep? The clear takeaway for me in that circle was that questions were to be regarded as threats. And other people may have had similar experiences. As I began to be more open about some of those questions, I was surprised to find others who I would have never guessed had the same questions themselves but didn't have the courage to admit publicly. So uh, in, in, in one case, the idea of questions is typecasted as the villain. But there's another phenomenon that's been going on for, for a super long time, but in our context, especially in the upswing in the last 15 to 20 years, uh, where doubt or questioning is not typecasted as the villain or the bad guy, but rather as the hero, and for a variety of reasons. Because of the hypocrisy of the church, the alleged incompatibility of the Bible with contemporary life, and a resentment for many about, <clears throat> about operating in closed-minded and fearful of everything evangelical circles, the person who throws off the shackles of dogma and embraces the uncertainty of everything is seen as a kind of modern-day sage who's reluctant to believe in anything. And the process of deconstruction is viewed very positively as a kind of conversion experience, or maybe it's more like a reversion experience. On the one hand, there's a fear of questioning. On the other hand, there's a fear of believing. And in both cases, you'll note the centrality of fear in guiding a person's decisions. And for my part, and for for the life of our church, I want to live a life beyond fear, where I have the security in my relationship with God, where I feel like I can ask any question that there is to ask, anything that comes to mind, confident that God and his sovereignty is unthreatened and non-anxious and unsurprised. And I also want to live a life beyond fear where I can really and truly say, I believe and count the cost of belief even without the full assurance of absolute certainty in an empirically verifiable, modernistic kind of way. One of my goals for today is to, to de-escalate, de-escalate our fear around questioning, to reframe the concept of doubt and questioning from being a bad, scary, or threatening thing to being a normal thing and actually intrinsic to the process of growing in, in wisdom and in courage and maturity. And my other goal is also just to encourage those who are reluctant to believe to re-examine the way of Jesus, certainly, but also just to challenge or question your fear of belief and investigate the origins of that fear and to allow the Holy Spirit to liberate you to operate in a spirit of adventure, throwing yourself headlong into the journey down the ancient path. So we've been in Genesis. We started in Jeremiah. <clears throat> I don't have COVID or anything. It's just the weather is that they got a little tickle here. 
But we started in Jeremiah for a couple of weeks, and for the last three or four, we've been in the book of Genesis. And last week in Genesis 12, we looked at Abram's call to differentiate, to leave behind his geographical, cultural, and familial identity to create a new family culture under the fatherhood of God, to be set apart and differentiated for the benefit of all the families of the world, a modifying blessing presence. Well, now as we consider Abram... uh, We take him to be a guy who you'd think pretty much has his questions about God answered. Uh, God appears to him with these very concrete instructions in Genesis chapter 12. And when he follows those instructions, things tend to go pretty well for Abraham. And you think this is a guy for whom doubt is not a big deal. Uh, I don't know if my friend Carter is here, but I had breakfast with Carter in our church a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Carter was imagining that <clears throat> heroes in the faith, or the people he really looked up to for their, <clears throat> for their spiritual maturity, had a greater deal of certainty about the things of God than he was experiencing uh, in his normal Christian life. And he was disappointed that the longer he walked with God, he still found that the idea of certainty in his relationship with God was elusive. But then we look at Abram in the text here. If you want to keep your Bible open to Genesis 15, we'll, we'll peek at it. My man, T.J. Sprague. Thank you. God first appears to Abram in a vision and says, Don't be afraid. I am your shield. God is communicating, reiterating to Abram, I've got your back. I'm going to keep you safe. You don't have any cause for concern. And Abram's first words of response to God are not words reflecting his certainty, but his uncertainty. And he says to God, what can you give me since I don't have an heir? I have no children. If you'll remember the story of Abram in Genesis 12, God had previously told him, I'm going to bless the world through your family line. But Abram and Sarah were getting old and they were childless then and they were childless even now in Genesis chapter 15. God had reminded him on numerous occasions that he would see his plans for him all the way through. But Abram, the patriarch of faith, was struggling to connect the dots between God's promises and his lived reality. And here in the text, God doubles down on what he had told Abram, saying, Look, look at the stars and count them, and just like that, so your offspring will be. And the text tells us there's this verse that's picked up by the authors of the New Testament and says, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Having not seen the fullness of God's promises, uh, realized he believed God, and that belief pleased God. Now, if you're reading the story all the way through, you think, great, uh, Abram has kind of settled his questions of doubt with God. He's gotten it out of his system. The very next verse God reminds Abram, not only am I going to give you children, I'm also going to give you this land that's currently occupied by the enemies, by Canaanites. And Abram says again, but Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? God had just promised him. God had just reminded him. He had just believed. And then again, he questioned, he doubted, he was uncertain. And Abram's interaction with the Lord here may remind many of us of ourselves. It's like, I believe. I don't believe. I believe. 
I don't believe. I'm hot and cold. I'm hot and cold. And depending on what the weather is and what you ate for dinner last night, your beliefometer could have very different readings. Well, what we find as we study people who walk with God, certainly in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, is that Abram's vacillation between belief and unbelief, between certainty and doubt, turns out to be normative behavior. Like, it just, if it reminds us of ourselves, it's because he's a human being. He was a dude. This was normal behavior, not exceptional behavior. And it indicates to us that the relationship between faith and doubt, certainty and uncertainty, is something we perennially hold in tension in the journey of the faith. And it's a tension that we have to learn to manage, not a tension that we fully resolve, not at least until the age to come. And, you know, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And even then, like our faith will be made sight. Until that day comes, we manage this tension of belief and unbelief, certainty and uncertainty. And for everyone who intends to journey down the ancient path, the sooner we can accept the certainty of uncertainty and make peace with it, the better. In God's wisdom, in the present age, we see as through a glass dimly, and we know in part. And this dim vision and this incomplete knowledge is something that God appears to be completely fine with right now. These environmental limitations, God appears to be fine with, and he even leverages them for his purposes. For the development of relational equity or trust with him, for character refinement for us, and also the creation of a community of co-adventurers who are all kind of learning together and stumbling toward the finish line and managing faith and doubt, certainty and uncertainty. Now, there's some people for whom uh, the concept of uncertainty or asking questions about your faith is very threatening. And while they may maintain an image of a person who has unshakable faith, the reluctance or the panic of other people or themselves asking questions or entertaining doubt reveals that they maintain deep levels of fear. Their faith, it turns out, is is more like a house of cards where if you were to remove one of them, they're they're afraid that the whole thing is going to come tumbling down. And so they can't entertain, you know, the concept of evolution, for example, because they feel that Genesis 1 requires them to believe that God created the world in six uh, literal 24-hour days, which I don't believe Genesis requires that of us. They must deny the existence of dinosaurs because they don't see it clearly spelled out in the Bible. They're scared of the discoveries of science because they feel that it could undermine or threaten genuine biblical belief. But here's the deal, and this may be very good news for some of you. If all truth is God's truth, if, as Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then do you think that God is petrified, no pun intended, of the discovery of fossil records? It was a pretty good line. Thank you, Ella. I mean, do you think God is genuinely scared of us asking that question we've been reluctant to ask? As of, Oh no, the jig is up. They figured it out. It reflects we have a very, very small view of God. What if every time science appeared to make some discovery, our response was not fear, but wonder? Like, whoa, maybe this is how God did it. Do you think that God is terrified by the prospect you're going to ask a question that he doesn't know the answer to? 
we mustn't project our fears on to God. God, as I've said, is completely self-secure, non-anxious, and unthreatened. He can handle your questions and curiosities, and so you don't need to be threatened as they arise. To admit that there are things that you don't understand and to ask questions is not a sign of weakness. It's not even a sign that you like, no longer believe. It may be a sign that you're actually gathering strength. And working out our, our, our curiosities conversationally with God can lead to increased intimacy and knowledge. And in the same way that a blacksmith exposes metal to extreme heat and then beats it with a hammer, God's truth and God's wisdom can stand up to our questioning. And therefore, we needn't be afraid of asking questions. Uh, by leaving room for curiosity and accepting that there are mysteries beyond our comprehension in the present age, we build in some much-needed flexibility in our belief system. And this doesn't mean that you don't believe or you're not a true believer. If you've ever been in a skyscraper, especially on the upper floors, you may have noticed that the building actually has a little bit of sway to it. And while the building can, like, can really do a great job upholding thousands and thousands or even millions of tons of weight, it still has some wiggle room and shifts and sways to keep things in balance. It's entirely possible to have extremely solid, orthodox, historic Christian faith and still say, I don't know or I don't yet understand. But part of the challenges in all this is what I've already named, that some people have typecasted questioning and doubting as a bad thing. They think that asking questions means you're questioning or undermining your faith. Or they think that admitting there's something that you might not understand uh, means that you don't believe anymore. And this, in my view, is an, unhelpful, an unhelpfully and like rigid way of framing a lack of understanding. And more than anything, it just indicates the underlying anxiety that we carry around this issue. What if instead of saying, I'm questioning my faith, or I'm not sure I believe anymore, we tried using language that appreciates the process-oriented nature of learning and also just the complexity of the subject matter? What if we found ways of describing where you are that open up conversations rather than prematurely shutting conversations down? Uh, as an introvert, I find it really helpful to have scripting. Uh, when Emily and I were newlyweds, uh, I read this book called The Introvert Advantage. And uh, they had this like, section on when you're at a wedding and you're seated at the reception with people you don't know. You could say clever things like, how do you know the bride and groom? It's like, man, that is brilliant. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I like scripting. What if you said things like, instead of I don't believe or I'm questioning my faith, you said, I'm curious to understand, dot, dot, dot. Or I don't have a great grip on that right now. Can you help me? Or I'm interested to learn more about X, Y, Z. In doing so, it reframes the concept of doubt or questioning away from a failure to some degree toward a recognition which is just realistic of a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding or the awareness of a paradox or an especially complex topic in the expressed desire to investigate or to explore more. That's Proverbs 1.5. Wise people listen and add to their learning. If you have a curiosity or a question, expressing the desire to learn more like postures you super, super well before God. 
It's helpful to normalize our curiosities and assume that God is unthreatened by them and then to explore them with him rather than to demonize asking questions, keeping them to ourselves and quietly dying on the inside. Many of you here have been a part of church circles or a small group before where you had a curiosity or a question about God and you felt very threatened to raise that because it might scare people. Well, God is not scared by that. And in the church, we need to develop a tolerance for encouraging each other's curiosities, confident that God can handle it. I think it's also helpful to know that there are times in life where you can expect to ask more questions. Uh, a lot of, it's funny how many college students I've heard say, like, when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, like, you know, I'm not sure I believe because, like, that was just my parents' faith, and now I'm, like, figuring out what I actually believe. That is just so, like, on time, on script. When you're 16 to 21 years old, that's what you're doing with literally every part of your life. You're testing what your parents did or what your family of origin did against, like, your, your like, burgeoning adulthood and determining who you're going to be. It's normal to ask those questions. And so, parents, as our kids grow up, like, we should be unsurprised and non-anxious when they do that themselves. It's really normal. And they may come out on the other side. We're confident that they will by God's grace. It's really normal to ask questions when you have an unexpected loss or transition or tragedy. You know, at the loss of, uh, un- like the unexpected loss of a pregnancy or a child or a friend or a job loss. Sometimes where you feel like life has been very calm and rosy and then something really bad happens. Being underprepared for it, you can find all of these questions that may be very threatening to you. Questions may arise when you really count on God to answer prayer in a specific way and he doesn't seem to. Or you're in a desert kind of season with God and you're crying out for water and relief and nothing seems to happen. It's very normal to ask questions in those seasons. So if you are, uh, don't be anxious about it, but stay in conversation relationally with the Lord. By building in a willingness to explore questions relationally with God and with fellow believers, now we set ourselves up better uh, to, to manage shocks later on. And I call this concept just emotional budgeting. Uh, I am right now emotionally budgeting to be like very tired and a little bit run thin, you know, tomorrow, next Sunday at 1230 when Emily goes into labor on, on, on time as scheduled. <laughs> Remember that. Um, I'm anticipating like being a little afraid, and so I need to build in some like some opportunities to build up like my reserves to handle like our other three children and like the responsibilities here. It's, all of this is emotionally budgeting, preparing for what may likely come. Uh, I heard a definition of theology once that I found very helpful, and it was simply faith-seeking understanding. Asking questions can be a great exercise in your faith seeking greater understanding, so don't be afraid. Okay, so Abram's story in Genesis 15 demonstrates to us that the journey down the ancient path holds faith and uncertainty and constant tension. God leverages these environmental limitations to build trust, to form our character, and to shape a community. And Abram's story demonstrates for us that we don't need to be afraid of asking questions. God didn't shame him or scolding for it, scold him for it. At the same time, Abram's story shows us that we don't need to be afraid to believe. As Abram's story develops in Genesis, we gather that there's a kind of knowing that transcends certainty. A kind of knowing that transcends certainty. 
a kind of knowing that funds genuine belief, even at times in the absence of objective evidence. There are grounds for belief that are not necessarily scientifically verifiable, but are nonetheless real. Emily Odom right here, Emily and I have been together for 19 years, and I believe that Emily Odom loves me. I didn't even know it was Valentine's Day when I wrote this. Um, Well, how do I know that? Well, over the last 19 years, I've been gathering data uh, based on uh, interactions and conversations and experiences. All of this data lends me to believe the idea that Emily has decided that I am her guy for the rest of her life. And in good times and in bad, through now five pregnancies, through job changes and personality shifts, mostly on my side, etc., etc., Emily has convinced me that her posture toward me is one of enduring faithfulness and love. And if I am ever in doubt, I have a record of 19 years that I can look back and point to. Well, as Abram continues to walk with God, with each positive step forward, Abram can look back and say, thus far God has faithfully led me. To this point, God's word has proven true. Now, at no point was there certainty along the way. Certainly at the beginning when God said, leave your home and everything that you know and follow me, there was no certainty that it was going to work out. But by taking steps with God, bit by bit, Abram and God created a living record of a testimony of faithfulness. And bit by bit, God was developing relational equity or relational capital in Abram's mind. God promised Abram and Sarai that they would have a son. Well, how do they know for certain? They didn't. But in the absence of certainty, they chose to believe. And when Isaac was ultimately born and Abram saw God fulfill his promise, the lived experience of God's faithfulness funded future belief. And then imagine you're Isaac. And you grow up hearing the stories of how God had called mom and dad to leave everything and to take this massive journey from eastern Turkey down to Palestine. And like he said, I'm going to give you this land. And then they owned some land, the cave and uh, wherever that is, when Rebecca dies or when uh, Sarah dies. They they buy land and they see this, this like growing family. Isaac grows up like remembering how like his parents were old fogies. They were 90 and 100, way past birthing age when he came into the world. But God promised it, and he saw it happen. And he was born anyway. And I think it's for this reason that as God self-identifies a lot in the Old Testament, he appeals to his track record. He says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says to the generations to come, I'm the God who led you out of slavery in Egypt. God self-identifies by rem- like reminding Israel that they're in, in their relationship. And in their relationship, he's got capital. He's got relational equity, a good record to point to. The living ex- record of what God had done would inspire belief and trust. The living experience of trusting God in the absence of certainty would promote future trust in God. Uh, When I was a child, I believed, I trusted in God because I trusted my parents. And I continued trusting God because I trusted the people who were in my church and the things that they said about God. And as I've grown up and I've kind of made my faith my own, I've developed my own history with God of trying to trust and seeing where it went. 
I've had my own moments, and, and now at this point, decades of, of acting on belief and seeing God come through. And all of that gives me reason to believe and lends me a kind of knowing that can peacefully coexist with my uncertainty. And sometimes your own faith feels like not enough. And the good news is that not only do I have my own personal story of trusting God, but because my story of trusting God comes in the context of a community of people who trust God, I can appropriate your stories for myself as a way of buoying my faith. I can appropriate the story of the church through the last 2,000 years or the story of how God faithfully led the people of Israel as my own story, funding future belief and trust. In the absence or the non-existence of my own faith or in rising seasons of uncertainty or doubt, I can look back on God's historical faithfulness to my family, my family of faith, as a way of buoying myself, strengthening myself amid the storms of life. Like Isaac or Jacob inheriting the family stories of how God moved among them, so we are heirs of the promise. And for that reason, we need to learn our family stories, and we need to hear one another's stories. What we tend to want the most in life is certainty. We want to know precisely how things are going to work out, where the story is leading. We want certainty because we're anxious. We want certainty because we want to minimize our fears. We want certainty because we ultimately want control. But like it or not, God appears to be utterly disinterested in capitulating to our our anxiety or our desire for control by offering us that certainty. What he offers us instead of certainty is himself. And what he invites of us is trust. My friend and one of my mentors, Charlie, who's going to preach here in a couple of weeks, regularly says that in any given situation, that God is inviting us to consider, will you trust me with this? My buddy Todd, who many of you know, Todd Craig, said that for many years he asked God for clarity. And he realized that in asking for clarity, he was asking for a certainty. And he realized that in asking for clarity and certainty, what he was really asking for was control. And as God continued not to offer that, he started to ask for something different, which was courage. Why courage? Have you ever wondered what it was like to be Abram the first time God said go? Like how it was he was able to say yes. God shows up. We have no record of a relationship between Abram and God. No idea if Abram had previous belief. But God says go. I've got a plan for you. And Abram does it. Well, how is it that he does it? Well, at a certain point, he had to take a relational risk. He had to exercise courage and take a step of faith. It's a similar step of faith or relational risk that you take when you're trying to get to know a new friend or a person in, in, your, in your small group, your apprentice group. It's a leap of faith or an exercise in relational risk that if you open your heart to them and divulge, like, here's who I am, that they're not going to jab a knife into your heart. In the face of risk or uncertainty, courage is required. And Abram exercised courage by taking one leap and then another and then another and then another, and then another. And I don't know for certain, again, no certainty here, but I think that the the yeses to God got progressively easier and felt less risky than the first one. Because with each 
leap, each step, each time God came through as he promised, Abram's confidence in God grew. It takes courage to believe. It takes a spirit of adventure. And for some of you, you've grown so fearful, so reluctant or afraid to believe. And I just wonder if the Holy Spirit might not be encouraging you today, speaking to your heart, saying, it's time to give believing another chance. Will you exercise some courage and opt to trust me, to believe in me? It takes courage to believe. And it also takes courage to ask questions. My invitation and encouragement to you today would be don't let anxiety rob both opportunities from you. As our hearts have been tenderized by hearing each other sing, uh, we've been like primed by like, oh man, Cohen, you nailed it, buddy. <laughs> that had me in tears. Uh, and as we're about to receive communion, uh, like we're just in this great space where like, like the Spirit of God's just at work. We're tenderized a little bit. I just invite you to consider, like, why are you afraid to ask questions? Is it that you have a very small view of God? You don't believe he can handle it? And others of you, why are you afraid to believe? Is it that you're trying to retain a control? And I have news for you that you don't have control even now. Did you just hear the voice of God saying to you today, inviting you today, Will you trust me with this? Think of the hymn, my, my dad's favorite hymn. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him or how he's proven himself or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Jesus, we do love you. And we want to love you more. We do trust you, and also we want to trust you more. You know what we're made of, that we're dust, and to dust we will return. That apart from you breathing uh, the, your breath into us, like we're, we're hopeless. So Jesus, I just pray that you pour out your spirit on our church, on those who are in this room today, and also those who are uh, watching their computers this morning or their phones. <coughs> Just pour out your spirit on us and give us the courage to believe. Like, to believe it all again. And give us the courage to just like risk it a little bit by asking you our, our questions and presenting you with our curiosities. In the absence of certainty, would you increase our courage? In the presence of doubt, would you, would you buoy our strength to believe? our willingness to believe. We believe in you, Lord Jesus. You're our King and our God. We believe that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. We believe, as you promised, that you will return to restore all things. And even as we wait, would you help us to believe?